one person hearing the other person tell her story had empowered the next person to come forward. And you got a sense of that in the room, that they were finding strength in numbers and power in numbers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here, and I'm joined once again by my co-host and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Columbia Awards, among other things. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Our office has been in full swing this month, as you know. We've been gearing up to uh, announce the 2020 DuPont Columbia Award winners, which we're going to do in a week. That's right. We've gone through the judging process over the last several months. So we went from over 500 entries this year down to our 16 winners. Soon to be revealed. That's right. You have to stay tuned. Right. So in keeping with the previous two episodes of this season, where we've been looking back at the decade and some of our favorite conversations over the years, we're bringing you a previously aired episode with NBC News anchor and correspondent Kate Snow. We recorded this conversation with Kate right after she won a DuPont for her Dateline NBC report, The Cosby Accusers Speak. Yes, Kate published the piece in 2015, and then she was awarded a DuPont in 2017, just as the Me Too movement was really picking up. We recorded this conversation with Kate a year before Bill Cosby was finally convicted for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constan. The case against Bill Cosby, we've totally lost sight of that amidst all the other revelations yeah. that have come to light in yeah. recent months and years. But in, time. in recent times, that was the story, right? Yeah. That really, in some ways, kind of got this national conversation started. And I have to say, even though there were a lot of developments in this particular case since we first aired this podcast episode, the lessons that Kate has to share about reporting on sexual assault are really still relevant. So let's take a listen. As always, it's an edited version of the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, you're really sort of having us because we're here (laughs) today at NBC. In 30 Rock. Yes. Yes. On a little field trip. Good. We wanted to take a couple minutes today to talk about your award-winning story with Cosby's accuser speaking. How many of you believe you were drugged by Bill Cosby? How many of you believe Bill Cosby raped you? 27 women together in one room for the first time sharing their accusations against Bill Cosby. He drugged me without my knowledge and he raped me. He drugged me and violently raped me. I said, I won't stop talking and I will keep talking until somebody listens. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about how it came about and um, some of the, you know, what was going on in the news at that time? Sure. Everybody remembers what happened, I think, um, in the fall, November, December of 2014, when suddenly in the news there were all these stories about Bill Cosby. And it was because a, a comedian started talking about Cosby. A male comedian. uh, Hannibal Buress started talking about um, Cosby being accused of rape. And uh, at that point, 
a woman uh, came forward and wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, and that opened the floodgates, really. I, that's at least my recollection, is that once one person talked, then several more came forward, and then more, and then more. And you remember this. There were, I, I was doing stories almost every day for the Today Show and Nightly News about Bill Cosby. That all happened, and then things kind of... In, in the media, anyway, it, it sort of calmed down a little bit. We didn't do as many stories, but it was there was still this crescendo of or this growing wave of women coming forward. And by that following summer, we started thinking, wouldn't it be powerful to hear all of their stories in one place? And th that was the genesis of the hour that we did was... Frankly, me and a number of female producers, not that we had to be female, but we were, um, getting together. At, Ellen Mason was our senior producer. Sue Simpson, uh, Liz Brown were my main producers. And then Rob Buchanan got involved. Um, and we just had these conversations like, how could we do this? How could we bring together a number of these accusers in one place? And that started, I guess, in the beginning of the summer. And it was August when we shot the interview. So you talked in another interview about how there were a lot of conversations within NBC as to whether you could actually make this thing happen. And yeah. What were some of the challenges and what were, you know, was there pushback? And um, there wasn't pushback, although, as you can appreciate, we want people to watch our program. So we're always trying to come up with the most unique and innovative ways to, to tackle a subject. And I think in the in the early days of talking about it, we were concerned that maybe there was a little fatigue about the story, that would, would would people want to sit and listen to a lot of accusers talking about Bill Cosby or would would it, I don't know, would it feel like too much? Um, so we debated that and then we decided, no, this would be powerful. And then we had our booking team led by Marianne Haggerty start reaching out. At that point, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say there were more than f around 50 or more accusers that had been public. And so we, we just started reaching out, a, a team, not me personally, but our bookers, reached out to every one of the women that we could find. A lot of them were represented by lawyers, so we could kind of tackle, you know, we kind of target the lawyers. But we also, we reached out to everybody we could find, even individuals, and asked them if they would be willing to all come together. And that, I think, was the beauty of the piece was that, and the interview, was that they didn't all know each other beforehand. So we ended up having this incredibly organic conversation. We had flown all of them. Once they agreed, we flew them all to Los Angeles and we went to a hotel ballroom and we spent the whole day there. And, you know, in the morning we, we had makeup for them and did their hair and they all kind of, and then we had a gathering room where they could all kind of talk with each other, not on camera, just, just to meet. And then we sat down together and it was powerful. So having them all together, all of those accusers in one place after all these, you know, the stories started coming out little by little and then it sort of became almost an avalanche of accusations against Bill Cosby. By convening this group of 27 accusers in one place, from a journalistic point of view, what did you all hope to accomplish by hearing their stories all together? Yeah. And I, I should have mentioned the other big obstacle was just logistics. Imagine trying to get 27 people in one room to talk about anything <laughs> and 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 to get all their schedules to match and their flights to line up and that was a, a big logistical challenge but once we got them there um i had a number of questions kind of that i'd thought of ahead of time along with my producers and 
I think what we wanted to accomplish, we knew from talking to them on the phone in, in the process of organizing all this, we knew that there were similarities in their stories and patterns that emerged. And I think that's what I personally was trying to draw out in the room. Um, and, and I was letting them, you can you see if you watch it, I was letting them finish each other's sentences and letting it breathe a little bit. And, and, and again, organic, like, you know, just the way that we're talking right now around a table is the way we wanted it to be so that we would have kind of an unvarnished, um, the viewer would have an unvarnished impression of, of what they allege they went through. Again, these are all just allegations and he denies many of their allegations. And putting them all in the same room together, I mean, what I noticed was this idea of, you know, one person would tell their story and you would see the reactions from the other yeah. women. Yeah. Is, was there was there something about the communal yeah. aspect well, of it? And this? I think that um, represented, in a nutshell, this room, this atmosphere that we were in, represented what had happened over the past six months, was that they had found each other to some extent, or at least known of each other. And that empowered, they said again and again that it empowered them one person hearing the other person tell her story on television had empowered the next person to come forward. And you got a sense of that in the room, too, that they were finding strength in numbers and power in numbers. And I remember, Bev I'll never forget, Beverly Johnson, who's a former supermodel, said, we are moving the needle. Not much, but we're moving the needle. And that's what they were all hoping to accomplish. So I want to ask you a little bit about doing these kinds of interviews. You've obviously you've done a lot of this kind of story about yeah. you know, really sensitive victims of trauma, sexual assault. It's it's really tough, and especially if you're doing it for television. So how did you did you prepare them? Did you how are they? Like I said, we had a room where they could gather in the morning. They had breakfast in there. You know, we brought in some catering. Um, we also had another room where we did we did shoot. Where there were cameras, and you see this in in the hour, in the Dateline hour, um, where there was a wall of photos. We thought it would be, uh, we thought it just might be helpful to have pictures of them back in the day, back when they, you know, pictures of them that were from when they made their accusations. So, um, you know, someone's picture from the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. And it turned out to be incredibly emotional, way more emotional than we thought it would be for the women. They they went up to that wall and they looked at themselves and broke into tears because they remembered that younger version of themselves being hurt, they say. So I guess we, we, we tried to create some connection between them. I Before we started rolling tape, I shared some things with them um, that I probably shouldn't share on a podcast because my... My parents are listening, but uh, just there are things that have happened to me in my life that I shared with them, and not to the same extent as what they've been through or say they've been through. But you know, as a female, as a woman, I think we've all, pr probably most women, have experienced some amount of harassment, and so we we try we I guess I tried to connect with them, and and I I told them that um, what they were doing was brave. Because it was, <laughs> you know, it's hard to talk about this stuff. I mean, I remember one of them said, I'm a grandmother, and she's talking about, I don't know if I can say, she was talking about oral sex, and, and you know, and she's a grandmother, and her grandkids are going to be watching. It's not easy. Um, but that's what I do in every story that, I, that is sensitive. 
people have to trust you and they have to know you at least a little bit before you sit down in the chair and they have to know that you're not uh, judging them and that you're letting, you're just, in some ways it's sort of like, I imagine it's a little bit like being a therapist. You, you have to listen really well. Right. They, it is very emotionally difficult though. I mean, how does, how did doing that interview affect you personally? It affected me a lot. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I, I mean, I still think about it a lot. I, I think, again, for me, it was draining physically. We were in there for three hours, and then we took a lunch break, and then I think another two hours. I think we interviewed for five hours. Um, so, you know, I was like a wet rag doll by the end of the, by the, end of the day. Everybody was. Um, look, I, again, he, it's difficult because I am a journalist, and I know that Bill Cosby has denied these allegations and has said again and again that he's not guilty of these charges. So I say that, but as, as a woman listening to all these stories, it was very difficult to not be moved and to not feel that it would be an incredible coincidence if all these women had made up the same exact story with the same type of behavior and the same patterns. I guess it's possible, but it would be an incredible coincidence. And so I felt like we were doing a service, again, not just for these women, but for all the women uh, you know, in America who maybe haven't said something because culturally 20 years ago it was a very different time. People didn't talk about this stuff. So if we're starting a conversation, I guess I felt proud of that. So this was also being done on the heels of the UVA rape story, mm -hmm. and I imagine uh, this is where Rolling Stone reported that there was a, a college student alleged gang rape, and then Rolling Stone ended up right. retracting it because right. there, there were, were factual so many errors. Did that add to the pressure? Were you thinking about that at all? I think we're always thinking about that. Uh, I don't know that UVA added to the pressure. We're always, I mean, we are meticulous in trying to fact check and research, and I mean, we did. I think it's okay for me to disclose. We did background checks on every one of the women that we sat down with. We had researchers whose whole job was to was dedicated to looking up their background and trying to at least make sure that when they said they were at this club in 1982, it, you know there were other people who verified that they were at that club or there were ways to corroborate their stories. Um, we were very, very. Um, careful to try to do as much fact-checking as we could before we put anything on the air. And as I'm sure you know, we have teams of lawyers and standards and practices people in this building who weren't going to let us, you know, put an allegation on the air that we could, couldn't even, uh, you know, possibly verify was at least partly true. Did the women know you were doing those kinds of checks? Like, how do you balance the sensitivity of not making someone feel like you don't believe them with, right. I have to know that there's credibility here? I told them in the interview, I don't know how much had been told to them b beforehand, but during the interview, I said, you know, I need to ask you about some uncomfortable things. And I actually, a, a lot, I don't think some of this didn't air on TV, but just for our own reasons, you know, again, for fact checking, I verified some parts of, of stories that we were, you know, confused about or where there were discrepancies. I asked a few of the women uh, about criminal records that they had. Um, I think one, 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 what somebody had a like civil complaint. I mean, there, there were things that we uncovered that we had to ask about, just professionally as journalists had to ask about. And then we ended up summarizing that in the piece. There, there were a couple lines about that. Right. So the, you know, we do this podcast in part because we want students to take away lessons. Sure. And 
how do you do you have advice on how you ask those kinds of tough questions at, at one point in the in the piece you said none of you in this room have dna evidence no police reports sketchy memories why should we believe you so how do you ask those tough questions you have some tips <laughs> um in every interview that i do i'm always thinking about the other not that there's always one other side but the but other points of view you know and and in that moment that you just read i was i and i think i even probably framed it to them i said i, I think i believe i said okay ladies i'm now going to ask you some questions that bill cosby's team would be asking you that you know the, there there's a there's a man saying he didn't do any of this so i've got to ask you these tough questions and then we launched in and i asked all a number of challenging questions they don't have dna evidence many of them actually none of them um you know they in some cases don't have other witnesses um and these are many these are cases that happened cosby's team continually points out many many years ago but i do this in every story so i guess i've trained myself to do that you know all right to be curious about all sides of a story or looking at it from different points of view yeah and sometimes it's hard to see sometimes you're so convinced um as a you know as a person reading up on something you might think oh well this is so clear but then you realize oh wait a second what if it's this what if they're what if they're making this up what if they, you know what i mean so you have to sort of you have to think very critically about things you raised sort of an interesting question that you know it is always part of this topic which is you know it, it's also really sensitive to make sure that you get it right and to you know, do you tell both sides? What's you right? Know? By the way, we requested an interview with Bill Cosby. We requested interviews with all of his lawyers, with any of his um, representatives, and they declined. So interesting. As we were getting ready to come down here, um, I was mentioning to Lisa how I had seen your reporting in Penn State. Thinking, speaking of another mm. big sexual accusations. That, yeah, that happens to be another. I don't only do these stories, by the way. <laughs> I sometimes do happy stories. So Penn State, uh, Jerry Sandusky, who's now in jail, um, I, I interviewed the first uh, young man to go public on television. Others had talked to print, but he was the first television interview, and that was for a show called Rock Center with Brian Williams um, several years ago. Uh, my father, full disclosure, was a professor at Penn State at the time. He's since retired. Um, that's another thing. When you're a journalist, you have to sort of disclose if you have a personal connection to something. Um, so that particular story was 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 tough on a lot of levels for me. Uh, um, talking to that young man was heartbreaking, um, and then dealing with you know my 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 own parents were so sad and so disappointed at what had happened, and obviously you know they were heartbroken too. Is there any similarity between those two stories? Well, in terms of what the victims say, absolutely. In their stories, they all describe what, what is known as grooming behavior, making a person comfortable. The, the, the young man that I interviewed um, on Sandusky talked about, he was young. He was, I forget, I think eight or nine years old, somewhere around there. And Sandusky would take him to events, um, you know, take him to fun activities, drive around in his car with him. And, and his, his mother knew that Sandusky was befriending him and taking him to all these, giving him great access to Penn State sports, buying him presents. That's called grooming behavior. 
the women in the Cosby situation have also described being young women and wanting to be models or actresses. And Cosby, they they allege, was uh, taking them to places, taking them to his shows, introducing them to talent scouts and agents, managers, helping them, you know, produce a record. Or I mean, there, there are all kinds of stories like that. That's one of the things that they all, many of them have in common. Not all of them, but many of them have in common. Right. And so then the guilt that the victims feel because they are part of the they've somehow become yeah they're, they drawn they, into they would this. describe that they were lured into the situation and then felt that they couldn't say anything because he had I mean in Andrea them. Constance's case in Pennsylvania it came out that she kept in touch with him and the defense used that against her they said she continued to talk to bill cosby and, and phone calls and um you know he he at one point offered her family in canada tickets to his show after she says he you know assaulted her the other parallel i see is just how these people in positions of power everyone looks the other way for them or how they are able to get away or you know given the benefit of the doubt or sort of not held to the same scrutiny as regular folks, you know? I mean, that also just seems to a be A lot of the of... women told stories about that. Eden Turrell, for example, who was a walk-on on The Cosby Show. And she, I keep in touch with her, she has been emphatic that many people, and she said this on camera in our piece, that many people knew that something shady was happening. They saw her, you know, being taken to his dressing, Cosby's dressing room. They saw her come out upset and nobody said a word because she says that that was sort of accepted behavior at the time. Everybody, she, she believes that everyone around her knew that Cosby uh, was at the very least being an adulterer. <laughs> um, again, I haven't talked to all the other people on the set. I don't know, but that's what, that's what she claims. So that to the to the point of you know he was in such a position of power on that set and he had so much power at that time as a an actor that people just sort of let him do what he wanted to do. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. We typically you know ask people that we talk to about advice they give to young journalists, sure. journalism students, words of advice, guidance. Yes, um, my biggest one is to take some risks. Uh, I think most of us in my profession, most of us who've, who've kind of risen up to network level took a lot of risks. And also seeing seeing an opening and, you know, a, an opportunity or a door cracked open and, and wedging yourself into that door and trying, you know, it doesn't always work. But if you look back at my life, there are any number of times that someone said to me, well, I don't know, maybe you don't even want that. And I said, no, 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 I do want to try for that. Um, Good Morning America, which I used to anchor on the weekends, is a great example. Uh, my, my bosses at ABC said, "We don't." I was covering the White House, and they said, we don't think you're really right. They actually called me on vacation. It's a bit of a story. But they called me on vacation and said, we're going to be doing some screen tests tomorrow for the new weekend Good Morning America show that we're launching. We already have the male anchor. We're going to test some women with him. We don't think you're right for it. So don't worry. Stay on your vacation. You don't need to be there. And I said, but can I be there if I want to be? And they said, yeah, but how are you going to get there? And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be there. I ran from the beach back to my sister's house. I like took a red-eye flight overnight, landed at 7 in the morning at JFK from Portland, Oregon. And went to Saks and bought clothes and shoes and a handbag because I had nothing with me. I had beach clothes. 
and I went to the screen test and I got the job. So th th that's a small example of take a risk. You know, so you see something that might be of interest, go when for it. When opportunity knocks. Sometimes you have to kind of create your own opportunity, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You see the opening and then you create it. Well, and, and holding truth to power, which is such an important part of the journalist's world, something else you've done so well, Kate. Thank you. I, I hope so. I mean, that's, you know, that's all, looking back, that's all I can hope for, right, is that I've done some stories that have, you know, spoken truth to power. I've done some stories that have gotten people talking. I think there are a lot of things in this world that we don't talk about enough, you know, mental health or... Um, I don't know, drug abuse. I've done a lot of stories about addiction, um, heroin in particular. And, and those are things that for a while we weren't really covering. Now we, now we are, unfortunately, because it's just so massive. But um, that's a lot, of my, a lot of my stories. If you look for a common theme, it's, it's things that maybe aren't getting a lot of attention. I did a series on transgender kids, for example. They weren't getting a lot of attention at the time. Now they are. And I think that's a good thing. Great. Thank you so much, Kate. Great talking to Thank you. Thank you. This was yes, fun. Thanks for having us here. No problem. Thank you to Kate Snow for hosting us down at 30 Rock. Yeah, and it is a timely conversation even now. Indeed, it has stood the test of time. She didn't win that award for nothing. This type of reporting is so important, and I just want to say in kind of a sneak preview for our upcoming DuPont Winners Announce that at least a few of this year's winners deal with this topic. It was great to give those reporters the recognition that they deserve. And in addition to her anchoring gig, we might add, Kate has a new project, Relentless with Kate Snow, which just premiered in October. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Christina Shaman. And we had help from our new fellows, Carissa Quiambao and Jack Rossiter-Munley. Lauren Miragildo Santos is our coordinating producer. Our sound engineer is Ariana Sullivan, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ and visit our website on assignmentpodcast.org. And keep an ear out for the announcement of our 2020 winners on December 11th at dupont.org. Until next time. <laughs>